Charles Prowse is a Ninkana man from the Kimberley in Western Australia. Having spent more than 30 years working in Indigenous affairs, he's often been asked how best to improve the outcomes for Indigenous people. More recently, though, it's been the prospect of an Indigenous voice to Parliament, which has been the focus of intense scrutiny. A supporter of the proposal, he's decided to write a book on the significance of a yes vote and why he believes it to be important. Charles Prowse, welcome to Speaking Out. And before we get into the book you've written, let's talk a little bit about you. Can you tell us where you grew up and what your influences were? Well, I'm from Derby in the Kimberley in Western Australia. People may or may not know the nearest town is 220 kilometres away, Broome on Yaru country, and Fitzroy Crossing is 270 kilometres away on Bunaba country. And for a, a long time, that's all I knew. As we just got out, went to Broome and occasionally Fitzroy Crossing. You know, so the first 16 years of my life was in Derby, a town of 3,000. I come from a, like many First Nations people, a very large family with a very large extended family. and. I think half of Derby was almost half as Aboriginal and probably related to nearly all of them. So, <laughs> <laughs> and and Derby's a as an outdoorsy town, a fishing town. It's muddy waters with mangroves, and the mighty Fitzroy River is, is our major river, the Mudawara. So that's all I knew for a long time. And my family is quite, I think, strong. My mum often says, you know, one half. Of the town married the other half of the town, the Archies and the Dent ones. So. <laughs> and I've got three brothers and one sister and lots of nephews and nieces and quite a few grannies in the process as well. Obviously, coming from that background, though, you know, you've come on to do some really extraordinary things that would not have been obvious at the time you were growing up, thinking about you actually going and studying at Harvard, for example. What was it that helped you think bigger, look beyond the world that you were and have those kind of aspirations and think, yeah, you know, I can do that? Well, I didn't really at the start. Don't tell me it just happened by luck. (laughs) Well, I don't know. There's a little bit of that. But to be honest, I'm a nerd. I'm a book nerd. Well, specifically, I'm a comic nerd. And I think really that started my education journey. And that's also why I had to unfortunately leave Derby because year year 11 and 12 was by correspondence at the time. So mum and dad saw the fact that I I needed to continue with my education and, and off I went to Perth. And one thing led to another, and then I was at UWA. And you know, when you're black fellow, not many Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people still were graduating university at the time. So you're not pushed, but you are engaged in these roles. And I, I never resisted from being a cadet in, in a government agency in Aboriginal affairs, and I remain in Aboriginal affairs. I've never resisted because you know I just that's my world, and that's what my parents and my grandparents did, and I just followed that path and. I was very keen to. So it is a little bit of luck, but, you know, I think I was brought up with a set of values in in a community where it is my world and I did want to make a difference. And and I think one thing does lead to another. You take the opportunities, you work hard and things keep presenting themselves. And I just kind of feel, well, why not? Why not? Because there's lots of good things to do. And selfishly in the process, you do get to see the world. And I deliberately chose my career career or rather the jobs to see Australia. And then, you know, it led to seeing a little bit more of the world. So 
I just think my education, probably my love of comics really was a kickstart. Well, reading's a great start. I started with comics as well, actually. So I think that that love of reading does really translate, which brings us very nicely to the fact that you have written this book. But I was just wondering if you could talk to us a little bit, Charles, about why it was that you felt that you wanted to write a book as part of your contribution to this important national debate. Well, I wanted to contribute. That's the main thing. And I suppose, again, my career has led me to stay on this path and contribute generally. But the book almost kind of fell into my lap, to be honest. Hasha contacted me through a, a friend, Ben Bowen of the Indigenous Literacy Foundation, and they were looking for someone to write a book. And I, I said yes, but I probably didn't really know what I was getting myself in for. And next minute, I'm writing a 10,000-word essay And I was a bit freaked out at the start, to be honest. But then I just thought, well, I do have something to say. This Again, this opportunity has landed in my lap. So you've got to take the bull by the horns. And the issue is so important. I felt I couldn't say no. And so that's how I ended up doing the book. It is a very personal reflection on the importance to you of a a voice to parliament. What are some of the key messages that you felt were really important to get across in terms of that very strong personal feeling that you do have about this issue? Well, I think it probably, well, it does. It goes back to the very start of who I am and where I've come from, from Derby and my big family and the population in Kimberley is, is half Aboriginal. So I wanted to bring that perspective in particular and then, of course, I've got my career where I've seen been around Australia and been overseas and, and done corporate and non-profit and government. So I suppose an opportunity to bring all of that together, but really grounded in the sense that I'm a community person from regional remote Australia and I've got a big family and it affects us. It affects my family. It affects me. It affects our history. And we are just but one family of many Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander families across Australia. So if I could put that in a book and write about it and for you know Australians to see it and see a perspective from a, a community perspective. You know, my mum's in the book, my friend Jason's in the book that you know. And so I wanted to put a, a First Nations community lens in a modern world. And it's that two worlds, you know, the Indigenous world and the, the non-Indigenous world, which I'm in. So I wanted to bring that. I want to just sort of draw something else out too. Um, Obviously, as you say, it's really very strongly about your sense of who you are and your community. But you also write from a perspective of somebody who has been involved with really important policy areas as part of your career. And I'm thinking of the work you've done around economic development, for example. From that perspective, to just draw out some of your arguments a little bit more from the policy work that you've done and those really important areas that you've been involved with in a very practical way. What are some of the reasons why you believe the voice to parliament is something that's going to translate? Well, building from both the community level and and into my work, we see change all the time and change is in the bureaucracy. People come and people go. And that means new ideas, chucking out old stuff. When there's a change of government, there is a change in policy and there are change in people, um, including the politicians and the bureaucracy. So, and for Aboriginal people, we have always been here. And, you know, even before I embarked on my career, 
at home, it was always around when a you know, new person came to be a manager from wherever they were, from Perth or Sydney. The question was always, how long are you going to be here? How long are you sticking around for? Because what we're looking for is how much investment do we need to make a new government person, new manager? And I mean, how long, if we make this investment in you and tell you all our challenges and tell you our solutions, will you be sticking around to implement them? And that's really the heart of what I've seen in my career, because you can go into a job as a manager or, you know, a director or set up a policy but when the government changes or when you leave your job to go to a new job or a new town and your life takes you in different directions, there is still that issue on the ground that has to be dealt with. And the change of bureaucracy means the, the community has to repeat itself yet again. And also in, the community has to invest in the education of these policy people and these politicians. And so we do it again. But then comes another election cycle and then comes another manager and you have to do it again. So it's certainly one step forward, almost two steps back, not the other way around. And that's why I think the voice is something that is going to be permanent. We hopefully will have to repeat ourselves less and we can actually get real momentum. And that's why I thought the voice in its permanency was is going to be a good thing. It strikes me that your book has two audiences in a way. It sort of is a reflection that I think speaks to many other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but obviously there's a large audience that you're speaking to to convince who's not Indigenous. And I was just wondering, what are you hoping both of those quite different audiences will take from the book? And did you did you think about one more than the other or are they both equally important to you? They are both equally important. And I think the language that I use, I'm trying to be accessible really to everyone. It's an, Hopefully it's an easy read. You do hear my voice. It's not bureaucracy. I try to make not uh, academic speak not big words. And that's not to simplify it at all. It's just to cut through the noise. And I did want it so that my community, my family could read it and and get it as well. It's the language I speak to my family and my community, but it also has to be the language and the accessibility to 97% of Australian people who are going to vote. You know, we're only 3% of the population and the power comes from the 97% or rather the the bulk of the voting power comes from the 97%. But it does have to bridge all of these worlds. It's also got to speak, well, non-Indigenous Australians includes other migrant communities or people who, who are first, second generation Australians. It has to speak to everyone. So I wanted it to speak to everybody. I wanted it to be a humanising conversation because we are all the same at the end of the day and I wanted it to be a conversation I mean, I don't give all of the answers. I give some history, but hopefully that brings people to a level of understanding and a relation to say, well, I know what they mean by that. And I know, well, that doesn't make sense. That's not right. And that's not just. It needs to be brought down to a very person to person, human conversation. That's what I wanted to write. And I, so I wrote it. Yes, I wrote it for the majority of Australians, but I, I absolutely wanted to make sure I got it right for First Nations people. Yours is such a heartfelt, passionate, grounded account of why you so strongly believe in the voice to parliament. And I was just wondering, it struck me how you're finding the arguments being put forward against the voice. Does it surprise you the sorts of arguments that are made against it, given that you feel so strongly about it yourself? Well, their opinions 
I'm not sure if they're arguments because I don't see alternatives from their side. I hear nays and, you know, all these reasons why not. But again, apart from, you know, there are people like Lydia Thought who actually do agree with some of the things that she says, but the naysayers in general, um, I find that they're not telling the full story. They're not telling, taking into account the whole gamut of issues, including cultural, psychological trauma issues, um, you know, that we have to face. Um, I think there's a huge missing element of cultural capacity and cultural authority that's lacking in those arguments and cultural language revitalization is missing in their arguments. But it's all about, it's all glass half full and there's no alternatives. And I don't think that they've been challenged enough to say, what do you mean by that? For us as Yes campaigners, we have to justify everything. We have to make sure all our I's are dotted and all our T's are crossed. And we answer the question, I don't find that the media is holding to account the no campaign in its truths or lack thereof or smoke screens. I just find the media is it needs to do a lot more work in holding the no campaign to account. You're such an optimistic person. It comes through in the way that you speak and it obviously comes through in such a personal essay that your book encompasses. What are your thoughts? Because obviously the polling isn't as strong as people have wanted. Do you think about what the implications are if the referendum fails? Oh, I do. I mean, the first thing I would say is the polling will go up and down and I'm you know, optimistic, as you say, that the general public will give sharp focus you know, when the date is announced and when we're, you know, six weeks, five weeks, four weeks from the actual referendum, their focus will be a lot sharper and they'll be asking more questions. And I do think that the No campaign has had a free run for a long time. I'm almost hoping that they'll run out of arguments or at least the Yes campaign will will come into sharp focus. I don't want to contemplate a No. I mean, I think it's just it'll be very sad for everybody, to be honest. I don't know why you would celebrate if there was a no for a start. So I don't want to contemplate a no, and that's why we've all got to step up to the plate. I think Australians generally are wanting to support. They just need some more information and they want to hear from some people. And I think the no campaign is just bombarding us, as I say, with a book with all this negativity. And I think the negativity might have even produced disengagement as a result. So hopefully some positive approaches will will start to re-engage the general public more. But a no-win, I don't see the benefit. I don't see how it's going to help our national evolution as a country. I don't see how it's going to help our national emotional well-being, to be honest. The book itself has a lot of you in it. You give a lot of yourself to your readers. And it struck me that that's a, you know, it's a very brave thing to do in any circumstance, but particularly in this circumstance where people are experiencing a lot of backlash when they speak out for the voices, a lot of discussion about the toxic environment in in social media spaces around this issue. So I was just wondering, as somebody who's coming across as so optimistic, but very generous in what you've shared Mm. of yourself in the book, how do you stay strong in this space that isn't always kind? Well, I suppose I make 
well, I make cakes, for example. <laughs> and I, I mean, that might be flippant, but when I wrote the book and, and it was done like the very final day and it was a media release, I just went into hermit stage and I just thought the only thing that's going to like make me happy is to bake. So I did bake a cake, but I do control my social media. I do try to stay positive. I'm trying not to, and I hope I haven't had a crack at people in terms of the no. I mean, we've talked about the no campaign, but you know, I do respect that people have different points of view, but I certainly try not to personalize it. And I think that's the only way that I can get through it. And I also am surrounded by friends and family. And I think without them, I would be, you know, I, I might come undone. But that's why it was important for me to present my perspective. My mum is in the book. I talk about my family, my community. I wanted to make sure that they were happy. I ground myself in my family and my community. I'm gonna, I mean, I'm gonna go home in a couple of weeks because I just need to see be and see home and talk to my family and, and, and all of that. So I ground myself in my community, my family. I try not to have a go at individuals and abuse people. There's some stuff I just don't look at at social media. So you can only do what you can do. Charles, thank you so much for this important contribution to the Voice to Parliament debate. And thank you so much for spending some time with us on Speaking Out, talking about your inspirations and your thoughts. And I do hope that at some stage I get to taste some of that baking. (laughs) You can guarantee it. (laughs) Thanks so much, Charles. Thanks. That's Managing Director of Nick Barr Consulting, Charles Prowse. His new book, Charles Prowse on the Voice to Parliament, is available now through Hushet Australia.